Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Talia Schlanger. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Flatlining. Nasser Hospital is the latest Gaza medical facility to be taken offline after a raid by Israeli soldiers. We'll talk to a doctor whose wife stayed at the hospital to treat patients who now hasn't been heard from in days. Lacking resolve. The United States vetoes a UN Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and instead proposes one of its own. We'll hear the American ambassador explain why. Training wreck. London, Ontario police say their goal was training, but our guest says the results of participating in an international competition alongside a unit accused of war crimes in Ukraine was to support Vladimir Putin. House alarm. We reach one of the many Canadian senators who've now opted to carry panic buttons after an increase in threats against members of the upper house. Lake effect. Record rainfalls in California create a temporary lake in one of the world's driest places. A park ranger tells us what it's like to be out on the water in a desert. And a bonus of contention. First, she got a $10,000 gratuity. Then she lost her job. And now her lawyer tells us the restaurant is trying to keep the lucky and then unlucky server from telling her side of the story. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that usually appreciates a hot tip. The sick and injured in Gaza are running out of options. According to the World Health Organization, Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip is no longer functioning. The UN agency has gone into the hospital to rescue dozens of patients. The hospital was raided last week by Israeli soldiers. The Israeli military says it detained, quote, hundreds of terrorists and other terror suspects who were hiding in the hospital, unquote. It also said troops were delivering aid to keep the hospital running. In November, we spoke to Dr. Tarek Aldagma, a pediatric ICU doctor at the hospital. Since that conversation, he has fled to Egypt with his daughter. But his wife, Amira El Asuli, who is also a doctor, stayed behind at Nasser Hospital to treat patients. We reached Tarek Aldagma in Alexandria, Egypt. Tarek, when was the last time you had a chance to speak with your wife? Just two, three days ago, uh, after the Israeli army stormed into the hospital, she she was able to to contact me while the Israeli soldiers are were moving them from a building to another building. I, I guess afterwards, uh, maybe they uh, collected all their mobile phones and they cut all sort of connections to the 
medical staff and the residents and the patients and the hospital. Just to be clear, she was saying that she was able to contact you via cell phone, but saying that the Israeli army, the IDF, was moving them from one building to another and you haven't heard to from another, her since. yes. They were searching, yes. Uh, she, she is an obstetrician, a maternity doctor, and she was uh, taken to the, uh, the main building. Even she sent me some... Some videos, which was uh, I saw there, uh, they were the last videos taken by anybody in the hospital, showing the Israeli tanks uh, demolishing the the walls and uh, going inside the hospital camp. Do you have any sense of where she is now or what has happened to her? I got to know that uh, 13 of my colleague doctors were arrested and taken out of the hospital after stripping them and uh, putting them in the the open air for many hours without clothing and uh, with uh, bands around their eyes and uh, their uh, their hands were tight tightened around their behind their backs and the list of the person including my wife dr amira she is detained against her will inside the hospital also our uh, minister of health published uh, today that the hospital is now out of electricity and the medical staff and the patients, the remaining patients inside the hospital are out of food and water. So we, I don't know what's the fate of my wife along with the remaining medical personnel and even there are around a couple of hundreds of patients still in the hospital. What do you tell your daughter about where her mom is and, and she must be asking and, and wondering? I try to reassure her that uh, your mother is going to be okay. She is not uh, taken away from uh, by the Israeli army. We were afraid that because she became a uh, multimedia and social media icon, everybody was showing her as a hero doctor while she was doing what is her uh, belief and uh, she was behaving spontaneously to save an injured patient. But uh, we were afraid that because of this scene, which was uh, gone viral, that she's going to be the target for the Israeli army, really. Now, the the Israeli army says that terrorists were hiding in the hospital. Uh, It says that it has arrested hundreds of militants. How do you respond to that? Look, sir, we are doctors. We don't uh, filter people. We don't ask them for ID. Like I, I stayed in the hospital for 85 days and I had an interview with the, with you before. Right. Nobody is asking, where are you from? Do you belong to a militant uh, group? Do you? And nobody's uh, searching them. I'm not surprised that they may have uh, found the residue in the hospital to, to hide maybe the militants and uh, whatever. But uh, as a doctor, as my wife also said in one interview, if an Israeli child, for me as a pediatrician, Jewish child is uh, injured or needs help, I will help. I will help anybody. I don't. Uh, I don't uh, make a difference. We are uh, doctors and we are physicians and we treat any possible any human being who needs our help. The IDF claims they found medicine inside Nasser Hospital that was labeled with the names of the Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. Do you know anything about that? Maybe, maybe, maybe some, some, some prisoners, Israeli prisoners, were brought to 
get a medical help in the hospital. And maybe they even uh, underwent uh, surgical procedures to save their lives. So the doctors really have nothing to be blamed for. The doctor will treat anybody who is brought to his attention. If you were on shift and an Israeli hostage was brought into the hospital, would you have treated the Israeli? Of course. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm telling you. We don't discriminate in treating patients. I don't ask where, where this is. Where this patient is Muslim, Christian, Jewish. We have uh, sworn uh, our oath to treat any human being. As you say, the last time we spoke to you, uh, you were living in the hospital with your daughter. Yes. How did yes, you make the right. decision to leave? What What finally made you decide it was time to, to leave for Egypt? It was really painful and uh, difficult uh, decision to take and to leave our my patients, my resident doctors to leave. It was very difficult and painful, but I was... I was put to this uh, decision because uh, I told you we were afraid to be arrested. They have arrested many people. I know doctors who are not from Hamas or and, uh, are not from, uh, it's not about being Hamas. I'm not Hamas. Okay, but uh, I've seen many colleagues of mine who are not Hamas and taken away and, uh, and nobody knows if they are alive now or dead. So these uh, scenes... Uh, made us uh, really fearful of being detained. And uh, I was afraid about my daughter, too. Of, well, what if uh, I was taken away and uh, she will she'll not uh, manage to, to survive alone? Did you try to convince your, to, your wife to join you to leave I to Egypt together? To convince, of course. I tried to convince my wife. I, I hold the Egyptian nationality, and this is how I got out of Gaza, because I have an Egyptian nationality. So uh, I, I tried to convince her to go take to, to leave with me, but she was uh, reluctant and she refused uh, primarily because her mother was uh, very sick and she was admitted to the hospital and later on she's uh, in the ICU. She's in the, the ICU, as, as I know, still up till now. We don't know if she's al- alive or dead by this time. And uh, secondly, because she is the, the, the only consultant obstetrician that remained in the hospital. She was the only consultant doctor who can go to OR, to operation room, and to operate, and to do cesarean section, and to do all sorts of operations. She's, she was the only remaining obstetrician consultant in the hospital. And she, she said, I cannot leave uh, the, the hospital. It's full of cases, and uh, I can't leave right. my mother also. And uh, and that's why she refused to come along with us. Well, it's an incredibly difficult situation. We really are grateful you're able to make the time to speak with us today. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. Thank you. We reached Dr. Tarek Aldagma in Alexandria, Egypt. We requested additional comment from the Israel Defense Forces, but received no response. What happens next in Gaza was the subject of competing resolutions at the United Nations today. The United States vetoed a resolution at the U.N. Security Council calling for an immediate ceasefire. Washington argued that the Algerian-backed motion would jeopardize talks to end the war. Instead, the U.S. is drafting its own resolution. It would also call for a ceasefire, but a temporary one, using a word that it has avoided at the U.N. It also warned Israel not to invade Rafah, where 1.5 million Palestinians are now sheltering from the fight. Here's the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. 
We have made clear, I made it clear in, in my statement today, the President has made it clear, the Secretary has made it clear that no attacks on Rafa uh, should, uh, should take place given current circumstances. And we will keep pressing that. Uh, we know, we've heard what Israel has said. They have not gone in to attack Rafa, and we will keep engaging and urging and pushing in that direction to ensure that that does not happen. Thanks, Ambassador. You mentioned in the Council that the call in your resolution for a temporary ceasefire reflects the language used by President Biden last week. After months of the US not wanting to refer to the word ceasefire, what's brought about the change in this language? Is this to sort of appease domestic pressures, global pressures? What's brought that on? Look, uh, Michelle, I've been clear from uh, the very beginning that we are working around the clock on the ground to get humanitarian pauses that will allow for the hostages to be released and for assistance to get in. And that happened in November and we got uh, close to, I don't know, 100 hostages out was the final number and we got needed humanitarian assistance in. And we're continuing to work on this. This is not a change, uh, it is not, a, it's, it's, it reflects what we've been doing all along. It hasn't changed what we've been doing. Hi, Ambassador. Uh, China described your position that the Algerian draft would undermine regional efforts uh, at the hostage deal as completely untenable given the situation on the ground. Explain then, Ambassador, how the Algerian draft would have placed those talks in jeopardy given that the Algerian text also called for the immediate release of those hostages. Yes, but they also called for an immediate ceasefire which would give Hamas the cover of not releasing uh, the hostage. Part of the ceasefire that we're working on requires that they do exactly that and this resolution did not make that connection and it was our concern that it would send the wrong message to Hamas. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield speaking to reporters at the U.N. Just because they're members of the upper house doesn't mean Canadian senators are above the fray. This week, CBC News learned that senators have been issued panic buttons that can summon help if they feel threatened. The measure comes after an increase in threats, including an incident in which a conservative senator's car was surrounded by pro-Palestinian protesters. Some senators say they've also noticed a spike in online harassment and threats, which they feel could spill into real-world violence. We reached Senator Bernadette Clement in Cornwall, Ontario. Senator Clement, when you became a senator in 2021, did you ever think there would come a day when you'd have to carry a panic button at all times? No. No, I didn't. And I've been in politics a long time. I was a city councillor for three terms here in Cornwall, and then I was elected as mayor of Cornwall, Ontario during the pandemic. I was a mayor. And even during those rather turbulent times, 
No, I still didn't picture that I would be carrying a panic button. Now, these panic buttons aren't required. They were offered to all of the senators. What made you decide that, yes, in fact, this is something you might need as a Canadian senator? Well, they were being offered last fall, and I thought to myself, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll accept this because I have to pay attention to security. But I didn't use it. So I got it in, in the fall and didn't really keep it on me. Uh, until I experienced uh, a threatening phone call uh, as a result of doing my job in the Senate. I now carry it on me all the time. Uh, And you don't have to get too, too personal, but can you tell us about the nature of that threatening phone call that you received? Sure. So I um, am deputy facilitator with the Independent Senators Group, and as part of those duties, I uh, managed the scroll for the group, um, which means that I have chamber duties. I get up in chamber, I adjourn items, and the point of adjourning an item is to make sure that my colleagues can speak at a later date. Uh, When I did that on a carbon tax bill, it um, created a lot of anger and frustration, and this brought about a threatening phone call to my office from somebody saying that he was going to be coming to my home in Cornwall. I advised security with the Senate. I advised the Parliamentary Protective Service on the Hill. I advised the Cornwall Police Service. And um, I have to tell you, security was really great. They took the threat seriously. And I have carried my panic button since that time. And have I got this right that you even you you felt you had to leave your home for a stretch, didn't you? Yes, because we were unsure whether this person would carry through with the threat, and so it was felt that I should leave. And it was shocking, you know, for me and for my family. You know, I I, I had to let my my family know, my siblings know, and it was upsetting to them, to us. So I feel better now. I just, you know, I just wonder about what this means for the future. I mentor young people who want to go into politics, and I have to have pretty frank conversations around what happened. Um, but I also want to to make sure to say to people, yes, this work is important. We should be encouraged to go into politics, but we do have to have conversations about how we speak to each other online, how we speak to each other in chamber, and the fact that that there is increasing tension, particularly for those of us who are women, who are racialized. There is an additional component of threat and stress. But I also tell young people that there are also a lot of messages of support. You know, when this happened to me and when I spoke about it publicly, people sent messages from all across the country, uh, women saying, you know, you're not alone in this and we want to see you continue to do this job. But in talking about it, I mean, do you ever worry that a a panic button might not be enough, that you might face a threat in public in which police might not be able to get to you in time? I don't think about that. I feel safe here in Cornwall. I feel safe in Ottawa. 
I have been reassured by all of the different levels of security in those places. We need to be aware of the level of risk, but not constantly afraid so that it prevents us from doing this important work. But I, I guess the compounding factor here is the the very public nature of the work you do. Like, I, I'm a notorious coward. I just stay home and I'd be, <laughs> be on my couch. Uh, do you feel sometimes tempted to just stay home and avoid public events and situations where you might face such a threat? I have to tell you, after that threat came in and I left my home, it was hard. You know, I retreated to... Uh, a place in Ottawa where I live when I'm in the Senate. And I I wondered about what it would feel like to go out again. But, you know, I was reassured by PPS, the Parliamentary Protective Service, by the Senate uh, Security Directorate, by Cornwall Police. And I got back to work. I think it was just about me getting used to the fact that I would have to be more aware whenever I walk from one place to the other, whenever something controversial is happening online or in, you know, the political world, that I I would have to be more aware. And so it hasn't prevented me from feeling comfortable in those spaces. But I will tell you that when I walk into a room now, into a space that I'm not familiar with, I will look around. I want to know who is in the room. And I think that heightened awareness wasn't there before this threat. But it it doesn't mean that this work isn't still important, still really enjoyable. I love politics. I still do. Most people who are in politics do it because they love where they live. And I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And that, that hasn't changed. Well, I'm glad you spoke with us about it. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. Thank you for this opportunity. Bernadette Clement is with the Independent Senators Group in the Canadian Senate. We reached her in Cornwall, Ontario. It's famous for being one of the hottest and driest places on the planet, and it has the name to back it up. In fact, Death Valley National Park is often used by movie productions hoping to transport audiences to a desolate, parched desert landscape. But if you visit Death Valley National Park today... That's not what you'll see. That's because of record amounts of rain across California over the past six months, including a severe storm hitting parts of the state today, which have created a rare temporary lake at Death Valley National Park's Badwater Basin. Abby Wines is a park ranger at Death Valley National Park. We reached her in Furnace Creek, California. Abby, what does it look like at Badwater Basin today? There's a lake that is about six miles long, three miles wide, and only about a foot or two deep. <laughs> On days when it's not windy, which today is a windy day, so it might not be so pretty right now, but when it's not windy, it creates this massive mirror reflecting the mountains that are behind it. The Panamint Mountains behind the lake 
rise to 11,000 feet at Telescope Peak. And those are snow-capped mountains right now, so it's absolutely gorgeous. Wow. That's quite something. Yes, absolutely. Just by way of contrast, tell us what Badwater Basin usually looks like. Right. If you haven't been to Death Valley, Death Valley is the driest place in North America. We only get two inches of rain per year. And so Badwater Basin in the bottom of the valley is a big salt flat from ancient lakes during the ice ages that evaporated, dried up, and left behind all the minerals and the salts that they held in the bottom. So normally what you see is this big white salty surface that people say, is that snow? No, it's too hot. What is that? And salt. And it gets fractured in polygons about three feet to six feet across, creating these really bizarre patterns. Oh, wow. But now it's a lake. And that's really (laughs) awesome to see it in such a different condition. Are are people out there like in kayaks or at a foot deep? It's probably not something you could swim in. Yeah, you can't swim. (laughs) But um, if you're motivated, you can kayak. There aren't too many people out there with kayaks because most people don't come to the driest place in the continent with a kayak. Like That's just not normal travel gear to come out to Death Valley because it's been 19 (laughs) years since it was like this. Kind of a good reason why not. Um, But there are lots of people going out there and just waiting in the water, taking pictures, setting up their lawn chairs, just looking at the view. At 19 years, is that the last time that it flooded there? There was a little bit of water a few years after that, but the last time there was this large lake was in the winter of 2004 to 2005. Wow. And I I mean, I don't know if you were around there, but people must be full of stories about the last time that happened. (laughs) I got here in May of 2005, so I just missed that lake. And I heard stories that someone had set up a Loch Ness monster. There was a plywood cutout. We still have it tucked behind the ranger station now. We kept it. (laughs) So um, no Loch Ness has shown up this time, but you never know what is going to happen. So we've had these two atmospheric rivers uh, in in the area with just catastrophic flooding in a bunch of areas, Um, road closures, all all the same. I wonder how much has the rain impacted the work that you and your colleagues do at the National Park? Oh, the rain this year has been a huge impact on our workload in volume and in deciding what we do. The big storm we had was the remnants of Hurricane Hillary that came through here on August 20th last summer. That storm dropped more rain in one day than this park averages in one entire year. So we got 2.2 inches of rain in that storm. That caused catastrophic flash flooding. It damaged every road in the park. There's 1,400 miles of roads in the park. So every road was damaged. The entire park was closed for just about two months until October 15th was when we were able to reopen. The lake at Badwater had formed after that event. and But unfortunately, there was no road. (laughs) So people couldn't get there. I got to see it, but... I didn't really want to rub people's faces in the fact that there's this amazing thing that you all can't see. So we weren't telling people about it. The lake then shrunk down, but was still really beautiful all winter. I can't, we were so shocked that it didn't evaporate and disappear, but it wasn't deep enough to kayak in most of this winter until we had a second series of storms that dropped three quarters of our annual rainfall in that three-day period. So we got 1.5 inches of rain. And now the lake is back up to a depth that if you're motivated to carry your kayak out there, (laughs) you can kayak in Death Valley. 
You know, as a as a park ranger at a place like Death Valley, you must be kind of struck daily or regularly at least of, by, by the power of nature and the long swings of how things change. What is it like to see this kind of aberration up close with your own eyes? <laughs> well, I suspect that um, up in Canada, you probably get a lot of seasonal changes. We do. Leaves change color. It snows. Flowers come out. Here in Death Valley, it pretty much looks the same most of the time, except in the spring when we have some flowers. And so seeing such a massive change so suddenly at a place that normally is very static has been really amazing, uh, really awesome to see the power of nature. How how long do you think? I mean, at, at only a foot deep, it's probably not going to last very long, is it? Well, let's see. Two weeks from Tuesday, you'll be okay, but not two weeks from Wednesday. So we don't know exactly, but based on what happened when this lake filled up in August with Hurricane Hillary, I think that it is likely that it will be still about one to two feet deep for another two weeks or so. Beyond that, it may or may not be deep enough to kayak anymore, but it will probably still have beautiful reflections through the end of spring, and I'm sure it will dry up over the summer when we get our legendary heat. Well, I hope you do get out to see it again, because it is such Thank a you. remarkable sight, and, and we're really just grateful you're able to, to share all this with us today. So thanks for that. Thank you. Abby Wines is a park ranger at Death Valley National Park. That's where we reached her. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. London, Ontario police are facing questions for sending a unit to an international police competition in Dubai. The UAE SWAT challenge sends participants sprinting, shooting, and zipline riding through a series of timed challenges. Here's some play-by-play from the opening day. Once that sniper shot is heard, only then can the breaches make their way towards the kill house through the door first time for the Canadians. Challenge organizers say the event is meant to, quote, create cooperation between all SWAT teams on a global level in an effort to create best practices in a friendly environment. But Oral Brown doesn't think Canadian police officers should have been getting friendly with the team that came in eighth. That was the Akhmet unit from the Russian Republic of Chechnya. And among other things, they're accused of committing atrocities in Ukraine. Professor Brown teaches international relations at the University of Toronto. We reached him in Toronto. 
Professor Brown, what did you think when you found out that this team of Canadian police had gone to compete alongside this Chechen paramilitary unit? Frankly, I was a bit dumbfounded because it just made no sense. I could not think of any good explanation because any police force needs to understand that whenever they engage in any kind of international contact, then it is no longer local. It has an impact on our international image, on our credibility, and it is a serious matter. So they need to take on that responsibility. Now, that said, I certainly appreciate that it's uh, very difficult uh, to be uh, a police person, that uh, training is essential. But I think in this kind of situation, even minimal due diligence should have told them that this was a thoroughly bad idea. What is it that concerns you so much about this Akhmat battalion and the man they serve, Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov? The Kadyrov clan is notorious for its brutality, for the horrific repression that they brought to Chechnya, for the atrocities that uh, the Chechen forces that they control uh, that went to Ukraine, the, the horrific things uh, that they committed in, uh, in, in Ukraine. The leader of the clan, uh, the person who runs Chechnya almost as a kind of mafia fiefdom, is not only extremely loyal to Vladimir Putin, he had said that, in fact, Putin should be made president for life, which essentially is what Putin is doing, but he also has endorsed honor killings of women who allegedly committed the adultery, or even the killings of... Uh, uh, any uh, gay people, uh, which uh, he believes uh, uh, should be allowed, even if they violate the constitution of the Russian Federation. So you are looking at a mafia-like organization that uh, has an extremely bad reputation, both within the Russian Federation and outside. It would have been easy to ascertain this. And then you also look at the meat itself, which was in the United uh, Arab Emirates, which is hardly a paragon of uh, democratic rule. We haven't heard from the London police chief about this Chechen group's involvement in these games, but he had defended the trip as, quote, extremely beneficial training opportunity, unquote. What would you say to the London police chief, Trunk? There are many training opportunities that are beneficial uh, around the world. Why choose this one? Why not do your due diligence? Why be so completely unaware of the kind of problems that, that this can cause Canada? And all you had to do was to listen to that wretched interview that Tucker Carlson conducted with Vladimir Putin, where Vladimir Putin singled out Canada to say, look, uh, there was uh, that incident in the Parliament of Canada where the Speaker had invited someone who had, in the Second War, participated in a Galicia Waffen-SS unit uh, that uh, was widely, widely viewed as uh, a Nazi unit, and there was a standing ovation, including by the Prime Minister of Canada. It was all twisted, uh, but in that incident, we recognized the seriousness. The Speaker of the House had to resign, and um, a deterrent was uh, created, but nonetheless, Russia took advantage of this. So in this case as well, uh, they can take advantage of this and they can say, look, uh, we have participated in these games 
with democratic states like Canada, and we have uh, uh, legitimacy. So I cannot think what real excuse that would uh, be valid. But can we really hold the chief of police in London, Tai Trung, responsible for looking at that list and recognizing what Ramzan Kadyrov and this Akhmat Brigade represent on the world stage? Whenever uh, any of us participate at a conference or are invited to an international event, it is normal to find out who the other participants are because that speaks to the legitimacy of that conference, of that event. It would not have taken any kind of intensive investigation, the calling in of various experts on Russia and on the subdivisions of the Russian Federation. All they had to do was to Google this, and they would have seen that any participation by the Akhmat unit, uh, which is controlled by the Kadyrov gang, uh, Kadyrov clan, was very, very bad news. And uh, if you are the chief of police of a sizable city, certainly you cannot be so naive as to believe that this is just a local matter once you are engaged in some kind of international activity. That is rather basic, that uh, international participation brings its own responsibilities. The blowback will affect not only uh, this uh, police uh, force in the city of London, it has uh, uh, negative national implications. And uh, it's not as if we hadn't in recent times had uh, an unnecessary international embarrassment. So what do you think needs to happen to sort of make this right? I'm not the judge in this thing, but uh, if you look at how international relations operate, and international relations are rather unforgiving. Mistakes uh, bring, bring penalties and they have to be rectified and we have to create a kind of internal uh, deterrent. What happened in the case of uh, Mr. Rota, he had to resign as uh, Speaker of the House. So in this case, uh, I'm not here to make any recommendations, but I think in, in terms of general principles, there, there have to be serious consequences for this mistake. Professor Brown, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oral Brown is a professor of international relations at the University of Toronto. We reached out to London, Ontario police for comment. This is from the statement we got back from London police chief Tai Trung. Quote, as chief, I am committed to ensuring our members have access to world-class training opportunities, and I supported the opportunity for our members to train, compete, and learn from over 70 different emergency response unit teams from around the world in Dubai, who are considered among the best internationally. Unquote. The Associated Press is reporting that some of the people closest to the late Haitian president Jovenel Moise have been indicted in connection to his assassination. The country's former chief of police, Léon Charles, is accused of murder. His widow, Martine Moise, and his former prime minister, Claude Joseph, are accused of complicity and criminal association. Mr. Joseph says that current Prime Minister Ariel Henry is, quote, 
weaponizing the Haitian justice system, prosecuting political opponents like me. It's a classic coup d'etat, unquote. We spoke to Claude Joseph last month. Here's some of what he had to say. As far as my political party is concerned, uh, we only think that the peaceful protest to uh, force Ariel Henry to step down, uh, political negotiation, uh, the way to go, not uh, violent means. You mentioned two and a half years. That's two and a half years since uh, the assassination uh, of Jovenel Moïse. Do you accept any of the responsibility for, for the turmoil uh, in Haiti right now, given the power struggle uh, that you were a part of in the in the immediate aftermath of that assassination? Uh, not, not at all. I'm a, a very consensual man. That's exactly why I decided to step down myself. Right, right after the assassination, I decided to step down. And I only uh, spent three months, three months as prime minister, uh, as interim prime minister. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to, uh, I, I cannot accept any mm -hmm. of the legacy of 10 years, 15 years uh, to leave us that legacy. That's why my mm -hmm. political party believes we have to have this system destroyed because this system generates uh, inequality, poverty, and extreme violence. This system only tolerates people who want to, you know, arm kids and young people so they can get power. So we are trying to define a new paradigm in politics in Haiti. This is what my political party is doing. You want to lead Haiti. Uh, my political party, of course, because we aspire to, to govern and change the people's situation in the country. It will not be easy, I can only imagine, to get people to trust in government again at this point, any government. Earlier this month, a judge issued arrest warrants for dozens of high-ranking officials accused of government corruption, including former presidents and prime ministers. How can Haitians even begin to trust anyone in power? Anyway, myself, I decided to go before the judge. I answer his questions, even though uh, I was not part of this uh, scandal. And I think, we think in our political party, no one is above the law. From our archives, that was former Haitian Prime Minister Claude Joseph speaking to Neil in January. The AP is now reporting that he has been indicted for complicity in the assassination of the late Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. Mr. Joseph denies the accusation. bill was 30 bucks, but the tip was $10,000. The customer said it was to honor a recently departed friend. 
The server split the sum evenly between most of her colleagues as requested, but now, just weeks later, she is out of a job. And her firing has sparked a debate on the restaurant's Facebook page. Jennifer McManus is the attorney for server Lindsay Boyd, who was fired by the Mason Jar Cafe in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Earlier this month, we reached her in Lansing, Michigan. Jennifer, how is your client Lindsay Boyd doing now that she's been fired from her job? You know, she's she's devastated, quite honestly. This is the last thing that she ever expected. Um, what started off as just an act of tremendous generosity that she shared with her coworkers approximately a week later ended with her termination of employment. So it's, it's been quite a roller coaster for her. You know, a, a tip like this, it seems like it should be a dream come true for any server. What did Lindsay tell you about how things kind of started to go off the rails? Well, the tip was a dream come true. It was completely unexpected. It was due to the generosity of someone she had never met before and who asked to remain anonymous. She shared it with her coworkers as she was asked to. She shared it with the other wait staff and with the takeout staff. And um, unfortunately, some of the back of the house people, dishwashers, cooks, so forth, were upset that they also did not share in the tip. So she went to her management and asked for assistance with how to deal with that issue. Um, managers wanted to know who exactly was complaining. She said that she didn't want to share that information. Um, she didn't want to throw anyone else under the bus. She didn't want to create any further drama. She was just looking for some assistance in resolving it. So they were upset with her for not sharing that name. Um, also, you know, the management initially posted this receipt on social media. And after that, different news media outlets were coming to the restaurant and wanting to interview Lindsay. And she did not want to be interviewed. She didn't want to draw any publicity to herself. And they were upset with her for refusing to engage in the interviews. Ironically, now here we are today. Um, but that's just due to the fact that, you know, she feels the need now to clarify exactly what happened. We reached out to the Mason Jar Cafe for comment, but they said they were unable to speak with us today. The owners did post this on social media, though. It says, quote, we cannot comment on the nature of her losing her job due to labor laws and to protect the staff involved. However, I will say it had nothing to do with the tip, end quote. They go on to say uh, they care for their employees. They claim to do everything they can, everything in their power to keep staff employed. Does that line up with what your client told you? Was she told that this had nothing to do with the tip when she was fired? No, that's not what she was told at all. Um, When she was initially fired, she actually wasn't given a reason for the termination. After she had a post that she put up and she was instructed and threatened about and told to take down, um, then she was told that her termination was due to insubordination. That still hasn't been clarified what exactly it is that she did wrong. But if she had done anything wrong prior to the tip that she should have been terminated for, well, she wasn't. She still continued to work there. Um, And they certainly never raised any concerns before. So all that happened uh, is that she received this tip. She asked for some assistance in dealing with some of the issues that arose. Um, She chose not to engage in media interviews. And then she was terminated. You were quoted in The Guardian uh, saying that the cafe threatened your client with legal action. What did they tell her? They told her that they have lawyers that will sue her. uh, And what they said was they would sue her for the entirety of her estate, which she said, this is a manager that was speaking with her. And she said, well, I I don't have an estate. You know, she's, she's a single mother of two children that, you know, works in a restaurant. 
Right. And so they used, really, they used the imbalance of power that they have over her to intimidate her and threaten her. Uh, as you well know, people are debating this on social media, and, and you have people calling for a boycott of the cafe after the firing, yeah. uh, others that support them. Has your client told you how she feels about all that? She has, and if I may, I do have to pull up a, a, something she sent to me. Sure. And if I can share this with you, can you hear me okay? Yeah. She said, one thing I want made clear is how I didn't want any of this. And more than anything, I want others to know that as humbling as all of the support has been, that I just truly don't want others reacting to my situation with more hate, anger, or animosity. It solves nothing. And there are still innocent, hardworking people in that building who will be the ones suffering, and I don't want that. That's what she wanted me to make clear. And, and I'm glad she did. I, I do wonder, has she heard anything from the person who left the tip? She has not. I would suspect that what Lindsay would want to share with him is that she hopes that what came out of this wouldn't discourage further acts of kindness from him um, because his act of kindness was entirely pure and appreciated and the generosity really was beyond anything that she could have imagined. You were retained, as I understand it, because the cafe had threatened Lindsay with legal action. Are are you considering any legal action of your own on behalf of your client? There, there's some consideration, of course, um, but nothing that I would be able to discuss right now. Really, I think right now what Lindsay wants is to make sure that what transpired is clear. Um, she doesn't want any further harm to come to her former coworkers, um, but she also doesn't want any further rumors to be spread about her. If it came to it and the job was offered back again, would, would she take it? That hasn't even been a point of discussion between us. And, and is she working somewhere now? No, not right now. She's just trying to to sort of pull everything back together. I mean, she is, she is devastated. She did not expect this at all. Um, she took the generosity of this one individual. She paid it forward and shared it with her coworkers. And a week later, she doesn't even have a job. Well, listen, I, I, I'm really glad you're able to make time to speak with us today and, and get all the details on this story. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Jennifer McManus is the attorney for fired server Lindsay Boyd. We reached her in Lansing, Michigan. In 2012, Sherry Peterson's eldest son was in a head-on collision. She remembers the first responders taking incredible care of her child when it happened. And when the opportunity came for her to give back to what she calls her fire family, she took it. She became the Merritt Fire Rescue Department's fire chaplain. And now she's being recognized for that work. She was recently named the 2023 Chaplain of the Year by the Texas-based Federation of Fire Chaplains. In an interview with the CBC this morning, she spoke about her role helping members of the public and the fire service. I'm really there to be a listening ear for these fire personnel and to give them an opportunity to share what they're experiencing on and off the fire ground. 
because the large majority of the firefighters in British Columbia are paid on call volunteers who honestly have other secondary, like full-time jobs. So the amount of strain and stress on these amazing individuals while they put their lives on the line is something to behold. What does it mean for them to have you there, especially if they don't believe in God? You know what? Everyone has a spiritual component whether they call it God or a higher power. And, and I really believe that because of the chaos that these, these uh, fire personnel deal with, sometimes in order to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense, they need help to talk that through from more of a, a spiritual, emotional level rather than just tactical some things don't make sense to us as human beings working in a crazy world, and they, they need opportunity to work that out. So, yeah, I think we all have a spiritual component to how we're built, and uh, it helps them make sense of things that don't easily have a descriptor. We're seeing so many significant fires and floods in our area in the interior, so it must be exhausting for you personally just to give so much of yourself. Where do you go for counsel? <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I am a, a very, very blessed member of the BC Association of Fire Chaplains. And as you well noted, also carry a membership with the Federation of Fire Chaplains. And the reason why I choose to do this as opposed to not being affiliated is the, uh, the amount of accountability and support we get for one another which is, uh, to me, golden. I can talk to any one of them on the phone, and I'm talking to people who do what I do, you know, and they understand fire culture. And for those who might think that we're there only in times of, like, critical fire instances, like, uh, that's, that's not the truth. <laughs> like, we're, not, we're also not the Grim Reaper. I love it when I get called upon to officiate weddings, or to speak a blessing over somebody's babies or, you know, celebrate uh, something that's going on in life. That was Chaplain Sherry Peterson with the Merritt Fire Rescue Department speaking with the CBC's Shelley Joyce, the host of Daybreak Kamloops. You've just been listening to the As It Happens podcast. You can hear our show Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after your world tonight. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Peter Armstrong. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm Talia Schlanger. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.